I trust everybody has come this morning prepared to, to receive the word of the Lord and to be changed through the worship of our great God. So if you have your copy of God's word, I invite you now to take it up and open there with me to Philippians chapter 2. I'll begin reading at verse 12. If you, if you have it on your phone, go ahead and get that phone out of your pocket and open it up. But I would say this, I would say this, don't forsake using your physical copy of God's Word. Mary Susan and I were talking earlier this week, and she was talking about the fruit of the Spirit and, and what chapter it was in, and immediately when she mentioned that, it was, it was on the top left-hand side of a page there in Galatians chapter 5, and I think that's useful. So just, just a, a note there, an encouragement, but find there with me in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, and I'll begin reading there, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. But all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus." But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and the one who ministered to my need since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Great. Our gracious Father in heaven, as we come to the preaching of the word, we acknowledge with great humility that we come needing the help of the Holy Spirit, both in the preaching and in the hearing. Help us to receive the word and be filled with encouragement, with renewed zeal and having a sincere conviction to be ever more faithful servants of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and useful soldiers in your mighty army. 
Shape us, equip us, and use us according to your perfect pleasure, and do so for the glory of your Son, Jesus. For it is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, and we go to part two of this message, I just, I just want us to be reminded that this is a time of worship. This is the preaching of God's Word. This is not a Sunday school class or a Bible lesson. And while we will have by the end here identified at least 19 characteristics or traits of a faithful servant, the point is, it is God's Word. And you're, we're to sit under God's Word and to hear it and to receive it and take it into our hearts and let it change us and become more and more like Christ. And, and so that's an exhortation to worship the Lord as you sit under the preaching of the Word. And it's not about the details. It's not about a how-to. But it's about being changed as we sit under His Holy Word. You may recall, if you were here last week, that we identified nine traits of faithful servants by focusing on Paul and Timothy in verses 19 through 24. And just as a quick review, those nine characteristics are, and I'll list them all here, a faithful servant trusts in the Lord. Number two, a faithful servant is a loyal friend. Number three, a faithful servant is like-minded. Four, a faithful servant sincerely cares for God's people. Five, a faithful servant is selfless. Six, a faithful servant has proven character. Seven, a faithful servant works hard. Eight, a faithful servant is a team player. And nine, a faithful servant is hopeful. Hopeful. And so now as we turn to verses 25 through 30, I'd like for us to look over this entire paragraph and see that the tenth characteristic of a faithful servant is a faithful servant is emotionally engaged. Number ten, a faithful servant is emotionally engaged. Now this may seem like a, a strange observation, but as I, as I was looking at the text and highlighting words, it really stood out to me. Just glance at the page if you're looking at, at the text before you now and see these sincere heartfelt words that, that Paul uses, longing, distressed, sorrow, eagerly, rejoice, and gladness. The eminently logical and analytical Paul was not at all devoid of emotion, nor was he describing a dispassionate Epaphroditus, not at all. Both of these men were obviously sold out for Christ, and not only were they willing to suffer loss and endure hardship and proclaim the gospel at enormous cost to their persons, but they were motivated in their faithful service by their large hearts. And as such, they were helpfully and fully emotionally engaged. Now, I have a long quote here, so bear with me, but... I thought it was helpful. In his religious affections, Jonathan Edwards observes this. Our external delights, our ambition and reputation, and our human relationships, for all these things, our desires are eager, our appetite strong, our love warm and affectionate, our zeal ardent. Our hearts are tender and sensitive when it comes to these things, easily moved, deeply impressed, much concerned, and greatly engaged. 
We are de depressed at our losses and excited and joyful about our worldly success and prosperity. But when it comes to spiritual matters, how dull we feel. How heavy and hard our hearts. We can sit and hear of the infinite height and depth and length and breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus, of His giving His infinity, infinitely dear Son, and yet be cold and unmoved. If we're going to be emotional about anything, shouldn't it be our spiritual lives? Is anything more inspiring, more exciting, more lovable and desirable in heaven or earth than the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel story is designed to affect us emotionally, and our emotions are designed to be affected by its beauty and glory. It touches our hearts at their tenderest parts, shaking us deeply to the core. We should be utterly humbled that we are not more emotionally affected than we are, end quote. Folks, we are not to fear our emotions, but nor are we to be ruled by them. We must not allow our emotions to hold sway over our minds. Rather, we must seek to let the truth of God rule our minds so that our emotions become subservient to the truth. And as we do this, we are better equipped to be the faithful servants God has called us to be. A faithful servant is emotionally engaged. But turning now to verse 25, we find Paul being effusive in his praise of Epaphroditus. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. And it is here that we find the eleventh characteristic of a faithful servant. A faithful servant is generous in his praise of others. Here Paul brings practical application to his prayer for the Philippians that he mentioned in chapter 1 as he approves that which is excellent. Just listen to how he describes Epaphroditus. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger, and one who ministered. And we will consider these descriptors at other points in the message, but what we first need to see is how generous Paul is in his praise and recognition of Epaphroditus. There may be no other verse in the Bible in which one person receives so many accolades, accolades, accolades in such a short order as we see here. Paul is clearly, absolutely determined that the Philippians hold Epaphroditus in high regard. So the question for us to ask ourselves is, are we as generous with our praise of others as Paul here exemplifies? I think that is a good question to consider now and in the future. When you think of someone else's character, what, what is your first thought? When you are speaking about someone else, what are the words you tend to use? Is there a critical spirit in your speaking or in your thinking? Do you first and foremost see their faults, their weaknesses, their ways and manners that you find irritating, annoying, or distracting? Or do you see a faithful brother, a good father, a person who is quick to help or gentle in speech? Be honest with yourself. 
as you reflect on these questions. It has been said that the greatest individuals commend the greatest things. They search for that which is most commendable and then set out to magnify it with speech, enjoy it with praise, and invite others to join them in glad admiration by calling attention to its superior qualities. And while this has the ring of truth to it, I want to caution us not to set the threshold of that which we find praiseworthy too high. We should also be quick to render praise in the small things. Praise in the small things. And if upon reflection you see that you have been stingy in your praise of others, then there are some practical things that you can begin doing right now to grow into a more faithful servant. First, let me suggest that we practice regularly rehearsing the praises of God in the mundane. Every moment of every day is filled with the opportunity for praise and thanksgiving. Every breath declares God's mercy. Every face bears God's image. Every morsel of food speaks of God's goodness and provision. Every tree speaks the wonderful beauty given by the Creator. Open your eyes. Ponder what you see. Take it into your heart and utter the praise that rightly needs expression. And second, hone your skill at describing it and reflecting upon what you observe. If you're new to this, it may feel awkward, but that's okay. It's better to start somewhere than to go nowhere. I'm convinced that every believer, whether they know it or not, has the heart of a praising poet within their grasp. Don't let pride... Don't let fear of judgment or want of the perfect word or phrase to keep you from expressing the praise in your heart. And third, invite others to see and enjoy what you have observed by sharing such praise. Bring them into the praises that you express. In doing so, you will own your own appreciation is exponentially enlarged. Their amens have an augmenting effect on your praises just as as the multitude of voices and parts add richness and depth and glory to the hymns and psalms that we sing, so does the chorus of praise from those you have invited in. They fill out the fullness of your praises. And when there is good news of great joy, we should want others to sing along with us. We can and should praise others in God-centered ways in ways that honor God, contrary to some perspectives that you will hear or run across in some Christian circles, this is not, rightly done, idolatrous. Remember, it is God who is at work in a person both to will and to do that which is commendable. So we should take notice of God's graces in them and call attention to it and commend with full liberty of conscience. And to clarify what I mean, perhaps a couple of examples might be useful here. Most parents need to know or need to grow in their ability to acknowledge their children with praise, especially when a child obeys or serves or is joyful in ways that honor Christ or his parent. Billy, 
When you pick up and put away your things like that, you are honoring Jesus and your parents. Well done. Thank you. Do you do this often enough, parents? And this is such a powerful tool in shaping our children unto Christ's likeness. Or consider, Wally, that prayer you prayed this morning was a real blessing to me. It was the prayer of my heart, and it is clear that God is at work in you for the sake of His great name. Thanks be to God. Or maybe, Lisa, your laughter and joyful countenance are always an encouragement to my heart and a reminder to me of the Lord's goodness. Thank you. Thank you. Well, may the God of all grace be pleased to grow us in our generous praise of others. And that brings us to the twelfth characteristic I want us to see. Number twelve, a faithful servant is a true brother. A faithful servant is a true brother. First in the list of Paul's description of Epaphroditus is that he calls him my brother. This man is a genuine brother in Christ. Further, Paul refers to Epaphroditus not merely as a brother, but as my brother. This is a term of deep affection, indicating a close and cherished relationship. At root, Epaphroditus is a Christian. That is not all he is, but that is the start of all he is. Paul frequently addresses fellow believers as brothers, not because they share biological DNA, but because God has graciously adopted them all as His beloved children. But we should consider that Epaphroditus' name implies a pagan past, suggesting that at birth his parents had invoked over him the protection of the goddess Aphrodite. But by the grace of Christ, however... Epaphroditus has been born into a new family and invested with a new identity. Now Paul affirms that he and Epaphroditus are brothers. And as the Philippians will glance in, in Timothy, Paul's son, the apostles deep concern for them and so his brother Epaphroditus, they will also see Paul's readiness to suffer for them. And of course, in all three men, they are encountering little Little replicas of Jesus, the suffering servant himself. And if you stop and think about the background of these three men, it's really quite amazing what the gospel has accomplished. Paul is a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Timothy is the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And Epaphroditus is a native-born Greek. Yet in the gospel, the middle wall of partition has been broken down. Those who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promises are now in Christ, brought near through His precious blood and have access by one Spirit to the Father. And as such, they are true brothers. Such a wonderful and profound truth we need to see in God's Word. Next, we see that Paul refers to Epaphroditus as a fellow worker. And so number 13, a faithful servant joins in the labor. A faithful servant joins in the labor. The term Paul uses for fellow worker, synergos, was a common word in the ancient world referring to someone who shared a similar task or trade. From this, we see that Epaphroditus was more than just the person chosen 
to bring the Philippians' gift to Paul, he was also there to labor in the same kingdom work that Paul was engaged in. Epaphroditus and Paul are shoulder to shoulder in the gospel. They are plowing together in the same work of the Lord. And there is no greater work than we can aspire to than laboring with another brother or another sister in difficult times, just like we see here in the text of Scripture. All believers should be like this, all of us, because those who are in Christ are saved to serve. Did you know you were saved to serve? Do you think about it that way? Every disciple has family responsibilities assigned to them by their father. No saint has the luxury of being served while not serving others. We must fulfill the task God has assigned us to do. And as you consider your own life, how do you need to be more like Epaphroditus as a fellow worker with other believers? How are you investing your life for the gospel? And again, don't, don't understand this calling too narrowly. Opportunities abound and are not limited to elders and deacons and missionaries and such. Know that as a faithful servant, there is much work to do, and so you need to join in the labor. Next, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier, which is number 14. A faithful servant is a soldier for Christ. There's a logical pro progression we can see here in Paul's description of Epaphroditus. The more we work for the Lord and join in the labor, the more we will experience spiritual warfare for the Lord's cause. Epaphroditus was in the battle with Paul. His allegiance was shown most clearly in the midst of imprisonment. In difficult times, it became apparent where his loyalty and duty lay. He knew that as he was leaving Philippi and traveling to Rome, that he was advancing into the line of fire in the spiritual battle. And the same is true for every believer today. The more we serve God, the more we will find ourselves on the front lines of battle. The enemy is not caring to oppose someone whose life is making little difference for the kingdom of God. It is the believer who is working for God, whose life is counting for time and eternity, and who is putting their nose to the grindstone, who most often finds themselves in the throes of a spiritual battle. And yes, moms of little ones, that's you. That's part of the spiritual service and battle that you are in. All servants should be soldiers, and all workers must be warriors. A faithful servant is a soldier for Christ. In the last part of verse 25, Paul writes that Epaphroditus is your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Which brings us to number 15, a faithful servant sees the need. We can only imagine the decision-making process that took place back at Ephroditus' home church in Philippi. There's not much written about Epaphroditus, but what you see before us and in chapter 4 later. Word comes to the church that the Apostle Paul is under arrest and is in need of help. And so you can imagine the church asking, what, what can we do to help? Who can bring that help? What type of man should we send? 
Perhaps there was a call for volunteers and a discussion of gifts and strengths and abilities needed to come alongside Paul. Who could be a fellow laborer and a fellow soldier in this situation? Now, whether Epaphroditus volunteered or was appointed by the church, he clearly understood the need was such that he was able to be a faithful servant to Paul. And having seen the need and having been sent by the church, Epaphroditus was from that point forward on an official mission to minister to Paul's needs. In the Greek, in the text here, it says he was apostolos, from which we get the word apostle. We should know that every Christian is sent by God, bearing words of encouragement to others in need. Did you know that about yourself, dear Christian? That you have a mission, a calling from God, and that you are necessarily bearing words of encouragement to others in need. Don't, don't hide that gift. Don't hold back from that calling. Wherever the will of God takes us, whether across the ocean or across the street, we are to be taking a message of edification and support to other believers. Further, we are to be messengers of the gospel to unbelievers in the world. We are to be speaking for the Lord wherever we go, and by the way, we necessarily do. We are to be light bearers in a dark world. Neither Epaphroditus nor anyone gathered here this morning can be apostles in the same way as the twelve commissioned by Jesus Himself. But in the way that Epaphroditus was, we are all apostles. We are all messengers. We all have a mission to accomplish. We are to bear the gospel in our lives. And so we must see the need. We must heed the call to be faithful servants. And we also see that Epaphroditus is described by Paul as a minister to my need. This word for minister, liturgos, is used only five times in the New Testament. It carries the idea of a priestly service. A priestly service of someone ministering in the temple by attending to holy things. It was also used of a servant of the king or a public servant of the state. This word indicates what Epaphroditus is doing with Paul is actually a spiritual work. He is fulfilling a sacred calling. He is acting much as a priest would in going into the temple and offering a sacrifice. As Epaphroditus is serving Paul, he is, in reality, offering unto the Lord the sacrifice of his own life. And putting this into perspective, I like what Charles Spurgeon once said, if God has called you to be His servant, why stoop to be a king? There's a world of need out there around us, and we are called by God to be His servants upon the earth. So take a look around. What needs do you see before you and around you, and how can you step in and be used by God to meet those needs? As faithful servants, we are called to see the need. Know your friends, know your neighbors, know your brothers and sisters, inquire, or sometimes just jump in and, and help. See the need. And now in verses 26 and 27, we read this of Epaphroditus. 
He was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So what can we learn here? I'd like to contend that we can find here the 16th characteristic of a faithful servant. Number 16, a faithful servant is compassionate. A faithful servant is compassionate. Epaphroditus is possessed by deep, intense feelings for his fellow believers in the church at Philippi. Paul used the same word earlier to describe his love for Christ when he wrote, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Epaphroditus is not a stoic worker, merely going through the mechanical motions. Instead, he is one who feels deeply for other people, especially those within the family of God. He is genuinely concerned for them because they found out how sick he was. And rather than, than be absorbed in self-pity, he is burdened. He is burdened that they are concerned for him. And he has compassion for how this news is likely affecting them. And remember, Epaphroditus was not just sick, but was lying at the doorstep of death. But still his focus was not upon himself, but upon the Philippians. He is more concerned about how they are reacting to his illness than he is concerned about his own health. And he is also distressed, the text tells us. So why is Epaphroditus so disturbed? His distress is not by, caused by his own sickness or his continuing service to the imprisoned Paul. It is caused by the realization that the Philippians have the same concern for him that he carries for them. He is moved by heartfelt compassion. What Epaphroditus felt for the Philippians, we should feel for one another. Our ministry must be carried out not only with our hands, but with our heart. We must be emotionally connected with others in our service for the Lord. We must seek to feel with them and feel for them. But it needs to be redemptive, Christ-like compassion. It is a compassion that serves and desires what is good for others and is edifying to the building up of the church. It is a compassion informed by the whole counsel of God and rendered in service to Christ. Epaphroditus was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. God spared his life. And Paul adds that this mercy was also on me. And this indicates how valuable Epaphroditus was to Paul and his ministry. God's mercy on Epaphroditus was in turn also his mercy on Paul. To spare the life of Epaphroditus was to show mercy to Paul because the apostle had become so dependent on Epaphroditus in his service to him. Again, we see this emotional connection between these two brothers and servants, between the prisoner and the infirmed. What a gracious expression of God's goodness for Paul that he would spare Epaphroditus' life so that Paul would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul was not a man devoid of feelings either. He was not a mechanical, doctrine-fixed robot. Don't ever think that as you consider the Apostle Paul. Paul himself had deep affections for those with whom he served and to whom he preached. 
He manifested the compassion of Christ throughout His ministry. Therefore, we see that to lose Epaphroditus in death would mean soul-wrenching sorrow for Paul. And so we see both in Paul and in Epaphroditus that a faithful servant is compassionate. In verse 28, and the first part of verse 29, Paul writes, Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness. And this brings us to the 17th characteristic of a faithful servant. A faithful servant is a conduit of joy. A conduit of joy. As a result of showing mercy to Epaphroditus and sparing his life, Paul indicates that he is all the more eager to send him. The way Paul expresses himself here strongly suggests that it is Epaphroditus himself that is carrying this letter to the Philippians. He's likely completed, you know, the needed service to Paul and is now returning to the congregation that sent him. And using the phrase more eagerly, Paul communicates a sense of haste and importance in, in, in sending Epaphroditus. He gives the impression that as soon as Epaphroditus' health permitted, he sent him back to Philippi. And then Paul gives two specific purposes for sending Epaphroditus back to Philippi. The first is the church may rejoice at seeing him again. Paul returns to one of the central themes in this letter of joy. Here the joy expressed is in the return of a faithful friend and a laborer in the gospel that binds Paul and the Philippians together. And secondly, while the Philippians will experience joy at Epaphroditus' return, Paul will be less sorrowful. In both of these cases, we see that in the sending and in the receiving of Epaphroditus, he is being a conduit of joy, a vessel of gladness. Paul's sorrow is decreased, and the Philippians' joy is increased. Do you see the familial, caring, loving, joyful connections between Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus in the Philippian church? Do you understand Paul's desire for the Philippians' joy? And what about the exhortation to receive Epaphroditus in his return with gladness? Throughout this whole letter, Paul has been repeatedly pointing to the sovereign goodness of the Lord in everything and in every situation. God had mercy on Epaphroditus, therefore rejoice. God also had mercy on Paul, so rejoice. Paul is being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of their faith, and so he is glad and rejoices with them. They are to hold fast the word of life so that he may rejoice in the day of Christ, knowing that he has not run in vain or labored in vain. Through thick and thin, through sickness and health, joy, gladness, and rejoicing are to be the result. This is because God is working in all things for our good and for His glory. We are tools rendered in service to the Master, clay in the potter's hand, vessels of honor being prepared for every good work. As faithful servants, we are conduits of joy, His joy and the joy of His people. And at the end of verse 29, speak... Speaking of the example of Epaphroditus, Paul exhorts the church to hold such men in esteem. Which brings us to number 18, a faithful servant is worthy of honor. 
Just as God exalted Christ for His obedience to the point of death, so too the Philippians should show honor to Epaphroditus, who was near to death in the fulfilling of his ministry to Paul on behalf of them. Showing honor to those who serve in gospel ministry provides the congregation with an opportunity to grow in their desire to see the gospel advance and to rejoice in God using specific individuals to advance it. Such men and women are models to other believers of setting aside personal ambition so that the name of Christ may be exalted in anticipation of the final day. The Philippians, therefore, are to elevate their estimate of Epaphroditus due to the lofty reputation he has earned as a humble servant of Paul and of Christ. Epaphroditus was a humble man and an authentic servant. And Paul exhorts the Philippians to exalt him. Why is this? It is because God exalts those who are humble and who serve. He resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. After all, Paul reminds his readers, Epaphroditus has served almost to the point of death. And how is this honor to be shown? Such honor must be shown in a way that ultimately draws attention to the grace of God in raising up such individuals and working through them to advance His kingdom in this world. Thus, the focus is not on how great the individual is, not at all, but rather how great God is who has used them. Of course, we must avoid placing individuals upon pedestals where they don't belong. At the same time, this concern should not prevent us from showing appropriate love and honor and respect to those engaged in the work of the gospel. For such honor and such encouragement is often the very fuel that God uses to provoke perseverance for continuing to serve in difficult circumstances. By highly regarding Epaphroditus, the Philippians will be recognizing on earth the true greatness that is being recognized in heaven. They will be giving honor to whom honor is due. Men like Epaphroditus, sacrificing their lives in God's vineyard, are to be held in high regard in the church. He is an example of sacrificial servanthood to every Christian. And as a faithful servant, he is worthy of such honor. Perhaps each of you, some of you now, are looking back upon your history at those particular points in time when a sincere Christian has spoken into your life and has been faithful in speaking encouragement to you or sharing the gospel. Or perhaps there was a, a missionary that you gave support to. In every one of those situations, it is appropriate to recognize that and to show them honor. And finally, we come to verse 30. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now, if we're not careful here, we run the risk of misunderstanding this last verse. Rather than indicating some deficiency in the Philippian church, what we should really see is our 19th characteristic of a faithful servant. Number 19... A faithful servant stands in the gap. So what does Paul mean when he writes, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me? I believe that we are to understand that Paul is further commending 
Epaphroditus for standing in the gap between Philippi and Rome by delivering the gift that they had provided, and he was thus supplying what was lacking on Paul's part and doing so for the work of Christ while not having regard for his own life. Do you see that? Is that confusing at all? To supply what was lacking, that's Paul's part in your service to me. And I need to emphasize that Paul's words, once again, are not in any way a rebuke, as if to say that the Philippians are finally doing what was necessary. Instead, the language simply reflects a fuller expression of the concern they had for Paul from the beginning. At a time when it was dangerous to be closely associated with Paul, the Philippians, and Epaphroditus in particular, stepped in to meet the needs. As such, it is a tangible outworking of the gospel. Just as Christ emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, so too Epaphroditus set aside his own plans to take the form of a servant to care for Paul during his time of need. Perhaps from your scripture reading, you remember that in describing the wicked leaders of Israel, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, The people of the land have used oppressions and committed robbery and mistreated the poor and needy. And they have wrongfully oppressed the stranger. So I sought for a man from among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. Epaphroditus was a man who stood in the gap before the Lord. And God continues to use faithful servants who are willing to stand in the gap. Fundamental to the identity of a faithful servant of Christ is seeking the interest of others more than our own. And while we have considered 19 characteristics of faithful servants, viewed at a higher level, these verses provide two ways that we can recognize faithful servants of the Lord. And the first we saw in verses 19 through 24 is through observing their proven worth in the context of life and ministry. Paul provides three marks of a servant's proven worth. Genuine concern for others, seeking the interest of Christ rather than of self, and third, working for the spread of the gospel. And the second way that we recognize a faithful servant of the Lord we see in verses 25 through 30 is risking one's own life for the work of Christ. Practically speaking, this manifests itself as sacrificially serving others. And as a result, those who do so, who do this, who sacrificially serve others, deserve to be joyfully honored for their service to Christ. Left to ourselves, we remain self-centered, self-consumed. We spend our energies and our thoughts and our loves and our activities on ourselves. But the Spirit of God is at work in us. The Spirit of God is at work in us to transform us more and more into the image of Christ, which means we're being transformed more into the image of the suffering servant. And as a result, we serve not merely when it is convenient to us or when it costs us little, but even when it costs us dearly. We may not all be called to risk our lives or physical safety or health to serve others in the name of Christ. But Jesus says to all his followers, 
Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. After all, even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so the charge before us then is to adopt the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, as Paul wrote. And when we have the mind of Christ, we are called to be his faithful servants, his sacrificial servants. And one way, just one way, we grow as faithful servants of Christ is by examining the lives of those people he he has been pleased to use and has been pleased to reveal to us in His holy, infallible Word, modeling our lives after their example. And so we have these three godly men set before us as exemplars, as examples of faithful servants. And as we look to them and as we look to Christ and pursue the mind of Christ, May the Lord be pleased to make each and every one of us ever more faithful servants in Him. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father, we give You thanks. We give You thanks for the examples of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. But most of all, we are thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, who humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, so that we might become faithful servants in Him. Take us, we pray, and use us according to your good and perfect pleasure. This we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. For we pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.